Well, thanks to everybody for coming out today, this last read aloud of the quarter. Um, we've got a terrific program. Um, Chris Anderson's um, here to read some James Thurber stories with the holiday theme for us. And Jason Gray is going to be reading from his most recent um, book of poetry. And I'll let the guys introduce their material a little further, but um, thanks again for coming out and to Wexner Center for hosting us. And there's coffee cups and, and snacks if you'd like anything, and um, enjoy. Thank you. All right. Well, good afternoon. Um, I wanted to read two selections from James Thurber, and uh, Thurber is of interest to me for two reasons. One is the Columbus Connection that you're probably all aware of, um, and second, he's a person with a disability. Um, he was born here in Columbus, and um, he attended Ohio State but didn't finish, apparently because he couldn't complete the required ROTC course because of his eyesight. Um, our family was familiar with Thurber for, among other reasons, because of the TV show My World and Welcome to It, that some of you might have recalled, um, where it was loosely based on his life and would have um, segments in it that would reenact parts of his stories. And one, for instance, that was very memorable to us kids was from, um, from um, um, The Night the Bed Fell. And um, if you're familiar with that, Aunt Gracie Schoaf had a burglar phobia. And she believed that every night <laughs> that burglars were breaking into their home. Now, there was no evidence that the burglaries had ever occurred, and nothing was ever missing. But for 40 years, she was convinced this was happening. And she felt that the reason nothing ever got stolen was because she'd always scared them off. Each evening, she would go around the house and collect all of the shoes and assemble them in a pile. And after going to sleep, at some point, she would sense that there was the burglar coming into the home, and she would sit up in bed and yell, Hark! And run to the door, open it up, toss one shoe down one hallway and the other shoe down the other hallway, and then head back to bed. And this would happen throughout the night, and she eventually exhaust her shoes. So as kids, we would reenact this in our home. Um, we'd go to the stairway and do it, though, standing at the top of the stairs and yelling, Hark! And throwing shoes down on our siblings down below. Um, so um, what I'd like to read first is um, a visit from St. Nicholas in the Ernest Hemingway Manor, which is based on the poem uh, A Visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Clark Moore, um, which is uh, the, the, the poem that starts off Twas the Night Before Christmas that gives us much of our contemporary imagery of Santa Claus. So the whole idea being fat and jolly and wearing the red suit and having flying reindeer and that kind of thing all comes from this poem. Um, and um, uh, before uh, he'd, he'd written this, various cultures had various ways of, of visualizing who brought your presents. Um, whether it was St. Nicholas, who was a tall, skinny, stern person who put coal in children's shoes and threatened you with beatings, um, to the three wise men, um, and other characters. Um, so um, um, Thurber, in writing this, was contrasting the poem that we are familiar with with the writing style of Ernest Hemingway, which tends to be very simple, very direct, very short sentences, rather plain, um, often not la having much description involved, often very action-oriented, which is contrasting with a poem that talks about things like sugar plums dancing in the head and 
shaking like a bowl full of jelly. So um, with that, let me read um, A Visit from St. Nicholas in the Ernest Hemingway Manor, which was written in 1927. It was the night before Christmas. The house was very quiet. No creatures were stirring in the house. There weren't even any mice stirring. The stockings had been hung carefully by the chimney. The children hoped that St. Nicholas would come and fill them. The children were in their beds. Their beds were in the room next to ours. Mama and I were in our beds. Mama wore a kerchief. I had my cap on. I could hear the children moving. We didn't move. We wanted the children to think we were asleep. Father, the children said. There was no answer. He's there, all right, they thought. Father, they said, and banged on their beds. What do you want, I asked. We have visions of sugar plums, the children said. <laughs> Go to sleep, said Mama. <laughs> we can't sleep, said the children. They stopped talking, but I could hear them moving. They made sounds. Can you sleep, asked the children. No, I said. You ought to sleep. I know, I ought to sleep. Can we have some sugar plums? You can't have any sugar plums, said Mama. We just asked you. There was a long silence. I could hear the children moving again. Is St. Nicholas asleep? Asked the children. No, Mama said, be quiet. What the hell would he be asleep tonight for, I asked. <laughs> he might be, the children said. He isn't, I said. Let's try to sleep, said Mama. The house became quiet once more. I could hear the rustling noises the children made when they moved in their beds. Out on the lawn, a clatter arose. I got out of bed and went to the window. I opened the shutters, then I threw up the sash. The moon shone on the snow. The moon gave the luster of midday to objects in the snow. There was a miniature sleigh in the snow and eight tiny reindeer. A little man was driving them. He was lively and quick. He whistled and shouted at the reindeer and called them by their names. Their names were Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Dixon, Comet, Cupid, Donner, and Blitzen. He told them to dash away to the top of the porch. And then he told them to dash away to the top of the wall. They did. The sleigh was full of toys. Who is it? Mama asked. Some guy, I said. A little guy. I pulled my head out of the window and listened. I heard the reindeer on the roof. I could hear their hoofs pawing and prancing on the roof. Shut the window, said Mama. I stood still and listened. What do you hear? Reindeer, I said. I shut the window and walked about. It was cold. Mama sat up in the bed and looked at me. How would they get on the roof, Mama asked. They fly. Get into bed, you'll catch cold. Mama lay down in bed. I didn't get into bed, I kept walking around. What do you mean they fly, said Mama. Just fly is all. Mama turned away toward the wall. She wasn't saying anything. I went out into the room where the chimney was. Little man came down the chimney and stepped into the room. He was dressed all in fur. His clothes were covered with ashes and soot from the chimney. On his back was a pack like a peddler's pack. There were toys in it, 
His cheeks and nose were red, and he had dimples. His eyes twinkled. His mouth was little like a bow, and his beard was very white. Between his teeth was a stumpy pipe. The smoke from his pipe encircled his head in a wreath. He laughed, and his belly shook. It shook like a bowl of red jelly. I laughed. He winked his eye, then he gave a twist to his head. He didn't say anything. He turned to the chimney and filled the stockings and turned away from the chimney. Laying his finger aside his nose, he gave a nod. Then he went up the chimney. I went to the chimney and looked up. I saw him get into his sleigh. He whistled at his team, and the team flew away. The team flew as lightly as thistledown. The driver called out, Merry Christmas and good night. I went back to bed. <laughs> what was it? asked Mama. St. Nicholas? She smiled. Yeah, I said. She sighed and turned in the bed. I saw him, I said. Sure. I did see him. Sure, you saw him. She turned farther toward the wall. Father, said the children. There you go, Mama said. You and your flying reindeer. Go to sleep, I said. Can't we see St. Nicholas when he comes? The children asked. You gotta be asleep, I said. You gotta be asleep when he comes. You can't see him unless you're unconscious. <laughs> Father knows, Mama said. I pulled the covers over my mouth. It was warm under the covers. As I went to sleep, I wondered if Mama was right. <laughs> um, with us uh, entering the season for doing holiday shopping, um, I had a second story um, by Thurber that was about winter shopping, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, uh, written in 1941 during World War II, and there's some references to those kind of events going on. It's argu arguably his most famous story, um, and um, in thinking about this, I am reminded of perhaps sort of a paraphrase of the opening line of Anna Karenina that every weird family is weird in its own way. Uh, my family had some, some eccentricities to it. Um, when you folks may have needed to defrost your freezer, for instance, and for some of us who are a little bit older, before a lot of defrosting freezers, you did this fairly often. In our house, it was not a very tough job to do. It did not take very long, because my father used a blowtorch. <laughs> and up until I went to college, I thought everyone used a blowtorch <laughs> to defrost their freezer. When he would do this, it would the image you should conjure in your mind is something from like a World War II news clip in a shipyard when there're welders with sparks and rivets flying around. Um, he would take the blowtorch in, and it just took a few minutes to get rid of it all. Um, so um, there are things like this that I just thought everyone did that way. There were some language kind of things like this as well. My father was from Wisconsin where they say things like calling drinking fountains bubblers, for instance. My mother was from Appalachian, uh, Pennsylvania, and would say things like when you needed to clean up your room that you should go up and red your room. Yeah? Well, one of the things that they would say, anytime you're referring to a, to a mechanical device, particularly a motor, you'd use the phrase pocketa, pocketa, pocketa. 
which I assumed was just some strange thing that came either from Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. And it wasn't until later that I found out that it actually came from the secret life of Walter Mitty. Um, so um, with that, why don't I read um, from the secret life of Walter Mitty. We're going through. The commander's voice was like thin ice breaking. He wore his full-dressed uniform with the heavily braided white cap pulled down rakishly over one cold eye. We can't make it, sir. It's spoiling for a hurricane, if you ask me. I'm not asking you, Lieutenant Berg, said the commander. Throw on the power lights. Rev her up to 8,500. We're going through. The pounding of the cylinders increased. To pocket, a pocket, a pocket, a pocket. The commander stared at the ice forming on the pilot window. He walked over and twisted a row of complicated dials. Switch on number eight auxiliary, he shouted. Switch on number eight auxiliary, repeated Lieutenant Berg. Full strength to num number one turret, shouted the commander. Full strength to number one turret. The crew, bending to the various tasks in the huge, hurling, eight-engine Navy hydroplane, looked at each other and grinned. The old man will get us through, they said to one another. The old man ain't, ain't afraid of hell. Not so fast. You're driving too fast, said Mrs. Mitty. What are you driving so fast for? Hmm? said Walter Mitty. He looked at his wife in the seat beside him with shocked astonishment. She seemed grossly unfamiliar, like a strange woman who had yelled at him in a crowd. You are up to 55, she said. You know I don't like to go more than 40. You are up to 55. Walter Mitty drove on toward Waterbury in silence the roaring of the SN-202 through the worst storm in 20 years of Navy flying, fading in the remote, intimate airways of his mind. You're tensed up again, said Mrs. Mitty. It's one of your days. I wish you'd let Dr. Renshaw look you over. Walter Mitty stopped the car in front of the building, where his wife went in to have her hair done. Remember to get those overshoes while I'm having my hair done, she said. I don't need overshoes, said Mitty. She put her mirror back in her bag. We've been all through that, she said, getting out of the car. You're not a young man any longer. He raced the engine a little. Why don't you wear your gloves? Have you lost your gloves? Walter Mitty reached in a pocket and brought out the gloves. He put them on, but after she had turned and gone into the building and he had driven to a red light, he took them off again. <laughs> Pick it up, brother, snapped a cop as the light changed and Mitty hastily pulled on his gloves and lurched ahead. He drove around the streets aimlessly for a time, then he drove past the hospital on his way to the parking lot. It's the millionaire banker, Wellington McMillan, said the pretty nurse. Yes, said Walter Mitty, removing his gloves slowly. Who has the case? Dr. Renshaw and Dr. Benbow, but there are two specialists here, Dr. Remington from New York and Mr. Pritchard Mitford from London. He flew over. The door opened and down a long, cool corridor, and Dr. Renshaw came out. He looked distraught and haggard. Hello, Mitty, he said. We're having the devil's own time with Macmillan, the millionaire banker and close personal friend of Roosevelt. Obstriosis of the ductile tract. Tertiary. Wish you'd take a look at him. Glad to, said Mitty. In the operating room, there were whispered introductions. Dr. Remington, Dr. Mitty. Mr. Pritchford... Richard Mitford, Dr. Mitty. 
I've read your book on streptothracosis, said Pritchard Mitford, shaking hands. A brilliant performance, sir. Thank you, said Walter Mitty. Didn't know you were in the States, Mitty, grumbled Remington. Coles to Newcastle, bringing Mitford and me up to here for a tertiary. You're very kind, said Mitty. A huge, complicated machine connected to the operating table with many tubes and wires began at this moment to go pocketa, pocketa, pocketa. <laughs> the new an as anesthetizer is giving way, shouted an intern. There's no one in the East who knows how to fix it. Quiet man, said Mitty in a low, cool voice. He sprang to the machine, which was now going pocketa, pocketa, queep, pocketa, queep. He began fingering delicately a row of glistening dials. Give me a fountain pen, he snapped. Someone handed him a fountain pen. He pulled out a faulty piston out of the machine and inserted the pen in its place. That will hold for 10 minutes, he said. Get on with the operation. A nurse hurried over and whispered to Renshaw, and Mitty saw the man go pale. Coreopsis has set in, said Renshaw nervously. If you would take over, Mitty. Mitty looked at him and at the graven figure of Benbow, who drank, and at the grave, uncertain faces of the two great specialists. If you wish, he said. They slipped a white gown on him. He adjusted his mask and drew on thin gloves. Nurse handed him shining, Back it up, Mac! Look out for that Buick! Walter Mitty jammed on the brakes. Wrong lane, Mac, said the parking lot attendant, looking at Mitty closely. Uh, gee, yeah, muttered Mitty. He began cautiously to back out of the lane marked exit only. Leave her sit there, said the attendant. I'll put her away. Mitty got out of the car. Hey! Better leave the key. Oh, said Mitty, handing the man the ignition key. The attendant vaulted into the car, backed it up with insolent skill, and put it where it belonged. They're so damn cocky, thought Walter Mitty, walking along Main Street. They think they know everything. Once he'd tried to take his chains off, outside New Milford, and he'd got them wound around the axles. A man had had to come with a wrecking car and unwind them, a big, grinning garage man. Since then, Mrs. Mitty always made him drive to a garage to have the chains taken off. Next time, he thought, I'll wear my right arm in a sling. They won't grin at me then. I'll have my right arm in a sling, and they'll see I couldn't possibly take the chains off myself. He kicked the slush on the sidewalk. Overshoes, he said to himself. He began looking for a shoe store. When he came out onto the street again, with the overshoes and a box under his arm, Walter Mitty began to wonder what the other thing was his wife had told him to get. She told him twice before they set out from their house for Waterbury. In a way, he hated these weekly trips to town. He was always getting something wrong. Kleenex, he thought? Squibs? Razor blades? No. Toothpaste? Toothbrush? Bicarbonate? Carborundum? Initiative and referendum? He gave it up. But she would remember it. Where's the what's-its-name, she would ask. Don't tell me you forgot the what's-its-name. Newsboy went by shouting something about the Waterbury trial. Perhaps this will refresh your memory. The district attorney suddenly thrust a heavy automatic at the quiet figure on the witness stand. Have you ever seen this before? Walter Mitty took the gun and examined it expertly. This is my Wembley Victor 5080, he said calmly. An excited buzz ran around the courtroom. The judge rapped for order. You are a crack shot with any sort of firearms, I believe, said the district attorney, insinuatingly. 
Objections, shouted Mitty's attorney. We have shown that the defendant could not have fired the shot. We have shown that he wore his right arm in a sling on the night of the 14th of July. Walter Mitty raised his hand briefly and the bickering attorneys were stilled. With any known make of gun, he said evenly, I could have killed Gregory Fitzhertz at 300 feet with my left hand. Pandemonium broke loose in the courtroom. A woman's scream rose above the bedlam, and suddenly a lovely, dark-haired girl was in Walter Mitty's arms. The district attorney struck at her savagely. Without rising from his chair, Mitty let the man have it on the point of the chin. You miserable cur! Puppy biscuit, said Walter Mitty. He stopped walking, and the buildings of Waterbury rose up again out of the misty courtroom and surrounded him. A woman who passed laughed. He said puppy biscuit, she said to her companion. That man said puppy biscuit to himself. Walter Mitty hurried on. He went into an A&P, not the first one he came to, but a smaller one farther up the street. I want some biscuit for small young dogs, he said to the clerk. Any special brand, sir? The greatest pistol shot in the world thought for a moment. It says Puppy's Bark Ford on the box, said Walter Mitty. His wife would be through with the hairdressers in 15 minutes. Mitty saw in looking at his watch, unless they had trouble drying it. Sometimes they had trouble drying it. She didn't like to get to the hotel first. She would want him to be there waiting for it as usual. He found a big leather chair in the lobby facing a window and he put the overshoes and the puppy biscuit on the floor beside it. He picked up an old copy of Liberty and sank down in the chair. Can Germany conquer the world through the air? Walter Mitty looked at the pictures of bombing planes and of ruined streets. The cannonading has got the wind up in young Raleigh, sir, said the sergeant. Captain Mitty looked up at him through his tousled hair. Get him to bed, he said wearily, with the others. I'll fly alone. But you can't, sir, said the sergeant anxiously. It takes two men to handle that bomber, and the Archies are pounding the hell out of the air. Von Richtman's circus is between here and Salier. Someone's got to get to that ammunition dump, said Mitty. I'm going over. Spot of brandy? He poured a drink for the sergeant and one for himself. War thundered and whined around the dugout and battered at the door. There was a rending of wood and splinters flew through the room. Bit of a near thing, said Captain Mitty carelessly. The box barrage is closing in, said the sergeant. We only live once, sergeant, said Mitty with a faint, his faint pleading smile. Or do we? He poured another brandy and tossed it off. I've never seen a man who could hold his brandy like you, sir, said the sergeant. Begging your pardon, sir. Captain Mitty stood up and strapped on his huge Wembley Vickers automatic. It's 40 kilometers through hell, sir, said the sergeant. Mitty finished one last brandy. After all, he said softly, what isn't? The pounding of the cannon increased. There was the rat-tat-tatting of machine guns, and from somewhere came the menacing pocketa 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 of the new flamethrowers. Walter Mitty walked to the door of the dugout. He turned and waved to the sergeant. Cheerio, he said. Something struck his shoulder. I've been looking all over this hotel for you said Mrs. Mitty. Why do you have to hide in this old chair? How do you expect me to find you? Things close in, said Walter Mitty vaguely. What? Mrs. Mitty said. Did you get the what's-its-name? The puppy biscuit? What's in that box? Overshoes, said Mitty. Couldn't you have put them on in the store? 
I was thinking, said Walter Mitty. Does it ever occur to you that I'm sometimes thinking? She looked at him. I'm going to take your temperature when I get home, <laughs> she said. They went out through the revolving doors that made a faintly derisive whistling sound when you pushed them. It was two blocks to the parking lot. At the drugstore on the corner, she said, wait here for me. I forgot something. I won't be a minute. She was more than a minute. Walter Mitty lighted a cigarette. It began to rain. Rain was sleeting it. He stood up against the wall of the drugstore, smoking. He put his shoulders back and his heels together. To hell with the handkerchief, said Walter Mitty scornfully. He took one last drag on his cigarette and snapped it away. Then, with that faint, fleeting smile playing about his lips, he faced the firing squad. Erect and motionless, proud and disdainful, Walter Mitty, the undefeated, inscrutable to the last. That was really good, thanks. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I'm Jason Gray, I work over at the University Press. Um, I was a graduate student uh, in the MFA creative writing program here, uh, graduated in 06. Um, so, I don't know, can you hear me? I can't tell. Um, so I'm gonna read some poems from this little book, uh, How to Paint the Savior Dead, which the uh, our Good Neighbors to the North at Kent State University published uh, earlier this year. Um, and I'll read a couple new ones after that and a couple of Christmas-themed uh, poems just to uh, round the, the afternoon out. Adam's Tongue. And here at last is what you've all been waiting for, the tongue of Adam pink and fleshy, sweet as adder, kept behind glass for centuries. And while the world raged on, it has kept its silent vigil, here chapeled for all to come and see the first communicant with God, the holy name's first instrument. What treasure compares to this? Teresa and Avila, St. Martin's cloak, or Peter's tongue with its denials? And so we have come to keep it here, past the altar for sacrifice, the stone confessional, the censer smoke rising, here ensconced with the bottles of nard and the monk's hair shirts and the funeral cards. Just how it came to be here is not known, but legend has it that Cain returned to see his father's end, crept in the night to cut out Adam's tongue and carry it as a token of his fall, perhaps mere story but was Cain surprised by the incorruptibility of the tongue, its failure to shrivel, blackened to a tiny, cold, dark flake of soul? This was still body, fathers, live with every spark of care. Holding it, it dithers. 
Here it is, the first of blessers, the first of kissers, the first of namers, the first of acquiescers. The cost to look is free, but there is a box to donate for those of you whose hands, unlike this tongue, aren't mute. Staying in church, here we go. A generic pieta. I'm sure it was in Florence, but which church I can't remember now. Each held their light so much the same in flat discs you could stand in, and every sound was paper thin. In the air, the dust motes carried few, if any, stories and kept the holy hall blank with mystery. And there, past the confused light of stained glass, fracturing someone's martyrdom to pieces, crouched Mary, her boy heaped in her lap. I had seen this before and known the look of difficult pity on the mother, strained by loss and gain, and the slackened face of Christ. The artist must have seen what life was drawn out of the stone by masters with the power of Moses and his dowsing rod, that he could not exhume the same ferocity. Could he feel the anonymity creeping over his flesh like a wasting disease? And yet, in service to his patron, his lord, his soul, he sweated out the days and the light's unmysterious cast on his thinning stone. Because this was all he knew, for months he hacked away at marble with all his might and stood there weeping at its all too common beauty. takes place in a different kind of church, a temple at Luxor and uh, the Valley of the Kings in Egypt. The Little Sphinx. With his semi-automatic machine gun, he waves me over. He's a tourist policeman, but it's still a gun. He leads me through an arch around a corner to some antechamber guidebooks don't remember. Arabic to me is a lizard that darts behind the rocks. I'll never catch it. And his English is a mix of McDonald's and Miami Vice. He points to a statue of a sphinx the size of a German shepherd, though it's possible I'm being told to get down on my knees. But really, he is playing the tour guide and wants me to shoot it with my camera, and so I do. He smiles. I hand him five Egyptian pounds back sheesh. He hands me back my life. How American to be afraid to make him someone who would kill. Or maybe it's only human to think we are our own most impending danger, we who know the desert mirage and still walk toward it. I wonder if the Sphinx will bark its question and make me answer for myself. What are two legs at noon good for if not to go somewhere else and know that somewhere else? Though this keeper of an alleyway was tossed in a corner of a ruined temple, it's still a kind of crossroads here two languages looking for a way to pass each other without first reaching for a sword. We have done little to quell the Sphinx's anger. He must still want to crack his stone encasement, stretch his jaw and tear us savagely. See the punctures of his canines, how like bullet holes, both empty and intrusive. I should have said beforehand that, well, one, that the word bakshish is an Arabic word for like tip or bribe. Or and I don't know if 
anybody's familiar with the whole Sphinx story, but anyway, it was a big monster that would eat you if you didn't answer its riddle right. Basically. The, the riddle being what walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in noon, and three legs in the evening. Anybody know the answer? No. Man. Man. Young, you know, baby. Young and old. Oh. All right. The title of this poem is from a painting of the same name. Uh, the painting is by uh, Orazio Gentileschi and Giovanni Lanfranco in the 17th century. Saint Cecilia and an Angel. Do you see how Saint Cecilia isn't even looking at the angel's music sheet? Her face aware that she already has transposed to her place high above the orders? She plays the organ as if the sound could not be suffocated, even if the pipes had been decapitated, keyboards stripped of its ivory, and hands of their fingers. Her body like the pipes, her soul the music which has left the pipes, and is now what can be heard tormenting you to goodness a sweetness suckling at your ear. To be divine, one needs the heart to displace an other, find the neutral buoyancy. To be divine, one needs to recognize one divinity from another, ignoring what is heavenly for what is heaven. Most of these poems, in one way or the other, are about some kind of art. Um, and this next one's no different. It's called chiaroscuro, which is an Italian painting term for the lightness and darkness in a painting. And references the painter Caravaggio. You don't really need to know, but um, he's there. Um, <clears throat> it's imperceptible, the line where light transforms to dark or where awake becomes asleep, alone in the bed with dawn around the bend of Christ's head and Caravaggio's The Taking of Christ, hung up as a copy until the grime and age were cleaned away. He's the master of chiaroscuro, the slide from dark to light. This criminal, on the run for most of his career from one rage or another, named in honor of the angel Michael, brandishing a brush. All crimes are done in dark. All crimes will meet the light, says Christ, who suffered too at night. The scent of anemone sent up with prayer. The incense guards approach in twos and then engulf him. The troubled sleepers raise their swords, but in the end, who will sleep well this night? Perhaps it's a gift for you, the long nights where you know nothing but imponderable ache, to be given dark, to face it when it fills the bed, because so much will be withdrawn from life, so much and not enough. And Christ who knows the nights for kissing, pities you, and knows the gradient you live upon. To be given dark, the shadows on the wall, like iron grillwork of a stair, you can't decide to take or not. But then it's only gray and seamless wall. All our crimes are done, and there's the mundane miracle of the sun. Uh, this next short poem is about Marc Chagall as a painter. Uh, another painter friend told me this great story about, well, it's great to us, not great for him necessarily. He died in an elevator. 
uh, in the hospital. Well, he was old, though. So. Chagall and I mean, you know, it wasn't like he you know, died too early or something like that. Anyway, Chagall in heaven. Chagall went up but never came down, the story goes, rising out of his body as his body rose. The gates that parted for Chagall were not the same as for the nurse who might have inhaled Chagall's last breath. Poetic, one might say, that since he painted rising as if it was natural as gravity, he should die this ordered way. A justice that defies the way of things on earth, as if we said the nurse never had to exhale and a body could keep going up. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to read the last... Uh, poem in the book here. Uh, it's a series of four short poems. The whole thing is called Your Art History. One, first lesson. The first thing I ever heard from you was how to paint the Savior dead. I felt unseated, struck like Mary at the angel's visitation, and fell in love with your voice. Here was prophecy. I sensed the words shook you as much as they shook me. But the foretold means nothing if none can read what's on the summer air and what is not. Against the dark, a flash of fireflies, a speck of water on the brightest day. Two, interpretation. Here you are, the Corinthian maid, trying to get your lover into the sun, to trace his shadow. Always he must go, always you stay. How you will learn to love the rock you drew on when he's gone. Born out of a need to keep at least a ghost of our loves, the history of art is this, the bitter kiss of chalk left on your lips when stone is film plate and adored. Forget the process, love the aftertaste. When Adam left to tend his olives, you were left to bear his image. His knee-high boys with jelly-covered fingers grasped your skirt and marked their territory. The jelly stains were little hearts all over you. No woman had ever been so loved, you told yourself, and scratched a stick into the ground. Three, Case Study, The Annunciation by Jan van Eyck. Here she stands, stained blue and ready to divide into a copy of God, who focuses his light through the window lens, her name projected upside down, as if the painter knew years hence all newlyweds would be thus joined and sainted. Four, inspiration. Right now you are a field taking impossible photographs of a wedding, someone you once loved and someone else in white, the invitation plain and on the level. Still, you wonder if this is a fiction you're creating. Look at the image reborn in the chemical bath, the darkness drawn out of the white and fixed forever. Though maybe sometime later you'll find a small square emptied of its memories, the way her dark hair loosened from the veil and spilled over the dress, his tie undone and hanging down his wine-stained shirt front as they fall into the car and disappear. Go. The world is nothing but waiting for the light to burn all the images of what it will be like henceforth and what it used to be. Like a ring glinting inside the paper, the twist of silver tells us so. 
just a couple of new ones here. Belief. The sky that's in the water on the ground. The ribbon that held the hair until it tore. The cigarette unlit behind the ear. A leopard that gums its meat while claws extend. Ice that won't melt. Water that will not freeze. A slash of arms while the dead still breathe. The sand in the arroyo, oh mud-soaked mother, the unstretched cords inside my throat, consider, the mashed of bone, the skinless, a child's puzzle made from a desiccated brain. And while I slept, my consciousness trolled for leather and gristle. I pull, us now and add our disruption. Atlantis. Remember the way the water slipped over the city's edge. Rain collected in pools with other water, seeing and forgetting everything, including you and the crumbling columns of your bones. Forget your old desire. The city was obliterated, just as if by rebels who said me, and then me once more. There is no distance needed, only recognition. Remember the way the water slipped over the city's edge was like a girl's crucifix falling from her neck. All right, a couple of Christmas poems, sort of. Um, This first one um, was written after the um, Cassini spacecraft, which was sent to Saturn, launched a probe that landed on the Saturn moon Titan. And it launched and landed, sort of, in Titan on Christmas Day. So This is called Merry Christmas, Titan. To you we bring our knowledge, our invention, our metal. May it have safe harbor in your liquid hydrocarbon sea or warmth in the fissures of your ice. Beneath the methane may it find new measure for an old sense of weight. Our humble messenger which might have seemed a star at first, and then a wave of light, is made of stuff you're not familiar with. But someday soon won't it come to seem so? That's the wish we pack on board. We're planning ahead, you see, in case we need to darken your door, our words and our few things, with news of some other place we once called home. And this last poem also takes place on Christmas Day, but uh, in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, which I happen to be uh, one year. Christmas with Kings. Here, where kings have come to rest, we are the day's first tourists, sun just a white glare. Robed men perch in the rocks above the valley, watchdogs are worse as we enter an open tomb. Cold walls have lost most of their paint. The flecks of sky flaked off, now mingling with the sand. The ceilings, yellow stars, and the blue sky, almost nothing, as if obscured by smoke. The way to heaven was through the earth, the kings all knew. Surrounded by gifts, wrapped in cloth, wanting safe passage in their human way, 
from the old dispensation into the new. Christ knew it too, would wrap himself in skin and hide himself inside himself, and only after burial could he be raised. The sun through the shaft is seen the whole way back. I'm hoping for others when we reach the top, expecting terror from the watchers, thieves, shepherds, angels, depending on the story this turns out to be. They've disappeared, which leaves us in doubt and sleeved in dust from kicked up wind. More tourists move in and out of open tombs. Whatever made these gods human is over the peaks and untraceable, yet leaves its mark indelibly with us. Messenger, message, folding into one. Like the dust we are on a windstorm lifted, that which is sky is now dirt, and the dirt sky. Thanks. Thank you. Those, your, those were yours as well. Yeah. Those were wonderful. Oh, thank, thank you, so you Jason. And Chris, thank you for sharing the Thurber stories with us. Uh, it's a wonderful holiday program. And uh, this is our last program for the quarter. We'll be back on January 10th. Same time, same place. Hope to see you then. Everybody have a great holiday. Good, ha good luck on your exams, students in the audience. <laughs> Thanks to our readers.